welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the Managing Director for Cyber Theory, and our podcast today is going to explore the world of cybersecurity insurance and Toward that end, David Dergiotis is the chief insurance officer for Embroker, and he's going to join us. He's uh, previously served as the corporate senior vice president and national professional liability practice group leader for international wholesale brokers and knows a lot about complex cybersecurity exposures and data privacy law and regulatory requirements and like that. He also knows a lot about emerging technologies like blockchain and DeFi and crypto. Been a guest on Fox Business and CNBC uh, talking about complexity and value of the cyber liability insurance world, which uh, is going, if it's not already really important, is going to be very important uh, in the coming months here. So welcome, David. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, let's dive right in. Uh, you know, it's been an exciting week and a half or so. Uh, what What is the impact of uh, young Sam and FTX and Alameda on the insurance uh, insurance industry? Well, the insurance industry, as it relates to really any type of cryptocurrencies, blockchain, it, it's already a very difficult space. And I think there's still a lot that needs to be learned from an insurance company standpoint and ensuring all of the risks. And we're talking about a broad spectrum of things. I mean, you have Bitcoin, you have the broader cryptocurrency space, you have blockchain, you have you know decentralized finance, where really these are technology service providers that are tied in and utilizing different types of you know, really blockchain technology to provide different financial services. So I think that the market was already very difficult to begin with. And then you have the collapse of one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges and no doubt tied to fraud, misappropriation of customer funds and the domino effect that it's had just across the the broader industry. This isn't just one organization that operated in a vacuum. They were tied to so many different players in, in the crypto space. And you look at others, you know, like BlockFi, for example, they were dependent on them for an open line of credit. It's now having an impact on them. So it's it's really poisoned a lot of other very good organizations because you have the the criminal acts of a small few who really were using deposits for their own personal gain, using it for their own personal financing, purchases of homes and all sorts of incredible things that you just heard come out of the bankruptcy uh, letter. So it made an already difficult area of insurance that much more, I think, complicated. And it's going to take a little bit of time to dig out of this. I think you have a lot of people that lost money who are depositors and depending on FTX to be able to transact and acquire various uh, crypto. Now you have people that that lost that, you know, in some cases, life savings. And, you know, it, I think it serves as an expensive commercial for why really cryptocurrency was, was developed to begin with, Bitcoin being the, the kind of reigning king within that space. It was to really thwart or, or get around, I think, a corrupt system to be able to take destiny in your own hands for controlling your own money, being able to transact with people all over the world, giving financial freedom to people that are unbanked. So I think it's a very expensive commercial really for Bitcoin and and what really the thought behind uh, having a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin was intending to do. 
Yeah, and I, it'll be interesting <laughs> kind of to see what happens to that whole market going forward. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it has any remaining viability, at least from an investor point of view. Do you? I think it does. I think it's going to take some time to really earn back that trust. And, and I think it that's what's so important in knowing what you're investing in, knowing the people that are behind these different projects, knowing that they're they're properly uh, backed with enough collateral, not just minting their own really uh, made up currency like, like FTX. They had their own cryptocurrency that they were just minting on an unlimited basis. Yeah. And there was no value behind that. So if you're using this made up fake, funny money, internet money to be able to transact and, and acquire real currency or, or Bitcoin, you know, some of the hardest money that that's been developed. I, I think that you're on very slippery, a very slippery slope. You're, you're on thin ice. You need to know that the organization has actual assets, real legitimate assets that are backing the investments and and the money that's being you know given, yeah, I guess that create I don't know creates a you know a market for uh, sort of middle folks that can manage that part of the transaction, I suppose. Um, but our understanding was that this was not you know some big you know cyber attack hack, but rather a compromised credential and somebody got a hold of and was able to you know get get through all that without ringing any bells, right? Well, I mean, we've seen constant hacks in the, in the crypto space. A lot of times, Steve, they're, they have to do with what are called bridges, where you're bridging between two different blockchains. That, that's usually the weak spot. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars uh, worth of various cryptocurrency being, being taken. And you, that's where you have that uh, unauthorized movement into other wallets. They're washing it. You know, they're, they're trying to hide their tracks. Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, you look at you look at FTX. They were valued at thirty two billion dollars earlier, yeah. and they've gone that, from that to nothing to wiping out people's life savings. And it makes me think back to to Enron. You know, you you look at the rise and fall of Enron. And that's what really instituted the whole Sarbanes Oxley being having that financial transparency with accounting practices. I think you know this could be that Enron moment for the crypto industry where we see now some type of regulation where you see more transparency. But again, you know, even with proper regulation, even with all the technical safeguards and protections in place, that doesn't necessarily protect you from fraud and from criminal activity. That certainly still happens quite a bit in the traditional financial system. Yeah, sure it does. And, you know, then if it's if the regulators get their hands on this and, you know, it won't be any fun for the for the kids anymore, right? So you know what what fun is it for guys like Sam if you can't, you know, Right. Do the magic thing. So uh, it's it's just crazy. But leads me to another question about the, you know, um, the cybersecurity insurance uh, space at large. I mean, where is it going? It, it looks to me if you have so many breaches and so much unrecoverable money that is leaving the house here. Is mm-hmm. it are we ever going to be able to get a cybersecurity policy hearing like in a year or so? That's a great question. I know that for small and mid-sized organizations, it's it's been a very painful process. I, I can tell you, in working with a wide variety of clients, I, I've seen 100% plus increases on premiums. The, the And those are very difficult conversations to have with a client. Even if they've been doing everything right, there have been no losses. They've tendered no claims against the policy. To go back to them 
and say that, you know, hey, sorry, the rest of the marketplace has gone through a real correction and your premium is going from 200,000 to 400,000 because, you know, you've been caught up in some of those changes. Those have been difficult conversations over the past couple of years. I think it's been a real transformation that the cyber insurance market has gone through for so many years. It really has been a race to the bottom. Who can ask fewer questions? Who can charge the least amount of policy premium and attract the most business? And that worked for a while until it suddenly it didn't. And if you look back at the last couple of years, the, the frequency and severity of ransomware attacks, and this is no, this is nothing new to anybody in the cybersecurity space. You, you know that ransomware has been a rampant problem for the last couple of years. You look at the social engineering attacks, business email compromise. You, know, you just take a look at the FBI data. They, they release great statistics on internet crime every single year. Business email compromise is always the leading uh, loss leader when you look at all of the complaints, you know, of the 6.9 billion in losses that were reported last year, you know, nearly 2.4 billion were due to business email and email account compromise. And that was up from 1.9 billion roughly the year before. Saying all of that, that there's been a real transformation that the insurance marketplace has gone through. It's it's gone through a, a correction, whereas now I think the rates are starting to stabilize. We're seeing a lot more partnerships with a variety of risk management risk management providers, cybersecurity providers, you know, and broker being one in particular, we partnered with LastPass to be able to offer really top line, you know, leading edge password management credential protection options for our clients. So with the rise of insurtechs, we're seeing many more proactive services being offered to actually help the customer, help the client harden their cybersecurity posture, which is a win-win. They're able to operate a more efficient, stronger business with having data collection practices in mind, um, having better privacy controls in place, making sure that they're compliant with whether it's state or federal privacy laws. And then it's a win-win for the cyber insurance provider because obviously that, that's going to be a lower risk to take on and insure. So like in broker partnering with LastPass, we're seeing more partnerships across the board where it benefits both the, the policyholder, but as, as well as the insurer. So that's what we're seeing now. It's going to become, I think, more affordable going forward because the security posture and the requirements that an organization has to have in place is a much higher bar from where it was a couple of years ago. So it's just getting the insurance industry is getting their arms around properly underwriting and evaluating these types of, of risks and insuring them from a standpoint that makes sense. You can't be a small business and pay $100,000 for premium if, if you don't even have that type of cash flow available. So it, it's got to be cost effective for the insured, but it's all, it also has to make sense for the insurance provider as well from a from a risk management standpoint and loss leader. Yeah. And if I were a provider, it would be hard for me to rationalize why I would provide you know, any sort of uh, coverage uh, that wasn't bracketed with a lot of loss limitation around you know any any of these companies i mean you uh, you know well what happens to i don't know if you guys underwrote uber or not but what happens in an uber situation where you know and what what if they get what if they get breached again tomorrow i mean who's who pays for that how does that work uber is a very interesting organization you look at some of the things that have taken pl place over the last couple of years you you have their uber security chief that you know, arguably he he was found to have covered up and uh, really obstructed a FTC investigation. He was guilty on one one account of obstructing the FTC's investigation that they that they had. He was also guilty of a kind of what's called misprison. That's that's um, acted to conceal a felony from authorities. 
So you have him doing things that are unethical and immoral. When they were breached a couple of years ago, he was going through, or they were going through Uber, a FTC investigation with, with regards to a prior data breach that they experienced. And he essentially took a, an unauthorized access, a hack, and he tucked it under their bug bounty program and paid $100,000 to the, to the criminal actor. So he concealed a data breach and he concealed unauthorized access from the general public and from the FTC's uh, regulators. But then you also have uh, an Uber owned company, Drizzly. And this one's pretty fascinating to me, you know, again, owned by a subsidiary of Uber and you have the, the CEO that's being held personally accountable by the FTC. So again, they, they Uber and the CEO are not Uber Drizzly and the CEO were warned a couple of years that their security practices were inadequate. They didn't make any necessary changes. They get popped again. And, you know, no surprise. Now the FTC is stepping in saying, you need to do these things to better protect your insureds, to take privacy more seriously. And they instituted a number of things that they typically do against an organization. You know, you needed to destroy unnecessary data. You need to limit future data collection from uh, any of the customers and clients that you're working with, you need to implement an info security program. We typically see those types of things. But what's unique about this particular case is that they are going to follow him around as an individual. So if the CEO moves on to any other company you know, from Drizzly, they're telling him that you need to make sure that you're implementing a cybersecurity program for whatever company you go to. So now we have actions that are not only taken against an organization, but they're going to follow that individual around whatever company he goes to at any point in the future. I just, those things are very fascinating. We're seeing a lot of advancements in types of actions that are de- being taken against individuals. You know, you, you look at the CEO or the, the chief information security officer at Uber, he's going to be pursued now at this point for, for criminal charges. So we haven't seen that before. We haven't seen a company executive being held responsible for criminal prosecution over a data breach, over a hack. So it's just, all of these things are very fascinating. Insurance is never intended to cover you know, the CEO or C-suite's intentional or or illegal action. So I don't think it's going to change the perspective of insurance because the coverage never would have existed if it was something that was intentional or illegal to begin with. Now it's going to cover an employee's actions. Forget the CEO for a second, but if you have an employee who is stealing cardholder data or, you know, is a malicious insider stealing some type of information or providing access the policy is meant to cover those types of you know, exposures and threats, but not if it's an intentional action that's coming from you know, a C-suite member. So just Uber is a very interesting company, some of the things that they have going on right now. Yeah, and uh, we could argue for a while about whether that verdict was, uh, was a reasonable verdict or not, and whether Joe you know, did a good job or a bad job or any kind of, you know, what he thought was the right thing to do there, and, and that they got... The guy, you know, whether they got the right guy or the wrong guy, you know, they they initially went after everybody but Joe. But, you know, as they sorted through that and the Justice Department is certainly uh, compliant in this, that, yeah, those prosecutors are much would have been much more difficult. So, Joe, sure. everybody, everybody got a plea deal. They all testified against Joe. And, uh, you know, and, and now we get looking at eight years now. They better be careful here because, you know, I don't know too many folks and I've served, you know, six years as a CISO myself for a really large bank. And I don't know too many folks that are willing, would be willing to take that job today. You know, if we have, 
we sort of have this weird implied fiduciary responsibility that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the quote chief information security officer it shouldn't really have, right? It's not a true officer of the corporation. And if anybody, if they think there's a liability there, nobody spelled it out for for Joe or anybody else that I know, for example. And so I think it's overly aggressive for the FTC to pursue. Hasn't been done before. And it's just interesting, like you said, who who in the world is going to not only want that job in particular, but you think about the responsibility that sits on your shoulders in, in any organization to keep them in a sound you know, environment, to pr- properly protect data, to make, make sure that you're giving consumers proper notice and transparency. If a data breach occurs, what we've seen in the past, you see the CISO get bounced immediately. You know, they're terminated, they're thrown, you know, over the, the coals. It's just a very difficult position to be in to begin with, the responsibility, the organizational security that's required. And all it takes is, is one employee to, you know, make a mistake, to reuse a password, to click on a link, to open an attachment, whatever it may be. And, you know, the organization, it just, it opens up to an incredible exposure. So it's already a tough job, but now you have individuals that are going to be held personally liable or criminally liable. It's just, it really makes you rethink, is this a position that I really want to take on both professionally or personally for that matter? Well, yeah. And negligence is one thing, but, you know, I don't think that, you know, that wasn't the essence of the case here, nor was it the case in Drizzly. And, you got a CEO of a company who now is going to be followed around for what ten years? Is it was that the deal to make sure that you know he uh, makes they puts in these systems or plans or whatever in place? Which, by the way, are isn't are none of those things are going to prevent a bit breach going forward? And that's kind of the irony of all this, right? Is that you know MFA is easily worked around. So MFA. You know, the FTC kind of makes a big deal out of MFA, but, you know, it's not, it's not going to prevent a breach, period. And right. we've, we've proven that, you know, a lot. And so, you know, so I don't know. I'd certainly want a contract that specified all that stuff very clearly if, if I were to go back and do that job again. And that I wouldn't want to, that's for sure. It's very hard. It was hard then. Now it's much harder, of course. Were you guys involved in Cap One, by the way, in, Cap, in the Capital One breach at all? We were not. Capital One, you look at some of these judgments and, and some of these payouts you know, across multiple organizations. What, what was Capital One? 190 million? Yeah. 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 You know, and it was an AWS engineer kind of insider threat type type thing where 100 million individuals had their, their data compromised. But, but again, this is nothing new. You look at the Capital One 190 million payment Look back to some of the others that have just been within the last couple of years. Equifax, the, the largest, 700 million. T-Mobile, 350 million based on that data breach. And, and then another 150 million, by the way, that has to be spent incrementally over the next two years for updating their, their cybersecurity posture. You know, And yeah. Uber, we talked about Uber a little bit, Steve, at the beginning. For that data breach that was covered up by the CISO, you know, they paid out 148 million. On that, by the way, and th- there was a fifty-state settlement that went out with all the attorney generals. Yeah, so on top of the the FTC investigation that's taken place, they've already paid nearly one hundred and fifty million dollars you know, a few years back for that data breach. Yeah, these big things are nothing new. Well, you guys had you guys, meaning the industry. Sorry, at one point had kind of flirted with this idea where I think you were 
I think it was Marsh, and I think it was uh, 8200 in Israel, and you were going to, and Microsoft, I think, and you were all going to, that they were going to kind of create a standard for what a company must do in order to, you know, qualify for like the classic cybersecurity insurance policy. That kind of went by the wayside, I think, uh, and and I don't know if there's any. Yeah, you know, there were a bunch of things wrong with that, of course. But I don't know if there's a if there's a comparable movement going on today. But what what do you do? I mean, you know, it, it, we're only talking about the breaches that are reported here. There's like ten to one that aren't. And so, how can you guys protect yourself? Yeah, I, I think that the industry as a whole has collectively raised the bar across what they're expecting an organization to do from from a cybersecurity standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint. It's there hasn't been any one group that's driven it, but it's it's really been born out of necessity due to the losses. Just you look at what organizations charge. I mean, for so many years, it, when you talk about loss ratio for every dollar of premium that that you charge a, a policyholder, there are some companies that were paying out a dollar ten, so they were losing money on every single you know account or their portfolio you know, on a larger scale so it's just that type of underwriting was not sust- sustainable so really collectively over the last couple of years and, and you're right by the way you you look at the number of big headline ransomware attacks you know for for every colonial pipeline that you see i mean there there are countless others that never hit the headlines that you never hear about that cause real financial harm and, and destruction but collectively, what's been done over the last couple of years, there are a number of things that that insurance companies now at this point are requiring. And it's interesting, Steve, you mentioned MFA. That That is one of the things that an organization almost universally now has to have in place. But we know there are varying degrees of MFA that can be applied. You have somebody that's using you know, their, their personal cell phone for MS, MFA. That, that's one of the easiest ways to get around. You port out somebody's number, you know, you have their essentially their phone access shut off, it, the number gets ported into a criminal, and then they instantly have access to the code that was being sent. You know, then of course you have you have software options that are being provided or hardware that can be used like a YubiKey. So there's so many different variations of that. But broadly speaking, MFA is is one of the probably the lowest hanging fruit in terms of what's what's being required of organizations. Having sound data backup strategies in place and data recovery you know, methods in place has been a big one. I've personally seen cases where somebody says, yeah, we, we back up all of our data. And then you know, three months later, they experience a ransomware attack and they weren't doing an effective job or they weren't doing it on a regular basis. So the data that they had was either out of date or they had never practiced going through the scenario and recovering all of that information. So they might as well not have even been doing it to begin with. So I've seen cases where, you know, even with data backup, it wasn't effective. They weren't practicing. And then the ransom still had to be paid because of that. So uh, having stronger controls around data backup, how long, you know, how often are you instituting data backup? Are you using multiple methods, whether it's the cloud, offsite? Those are questions that a carrier is asking. You know, uh, endpoint detection is an important area that a lot of insurance carriers are taking a closer look at to making sure that that's in place, that you have logs that you can look at you know, different behavioral characteristics as people move through a network, being able to spot unauthorized access, closing open ports. If you're, you know, using Microsoft Office, they want to know that you're you're locking down some of that access points, some of those access points from anyone getting in from outside the organization. So some of those things around data backup, data recovery, MFA, closing open ports, those are a lot of the questions that that carriers are are really digging into and asking where it really was a an afterthought 
going back before uh, 2020. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it's and it's getting only more complex, you know, as we go ahead here. I mean, assuming that you accept the fact that there's going to be a breach and what you're really looking for is, you know, improved resiliency on behalf of your customer, it would seem to me that if you you know that there are a lot of independent sort of independent research firms around like Mandiant, for example, or Kaspersky, you know, that you could hire to, you know, do kind of a, a audit, if you will, of, you know, what, and then give you a report that says, here's our view, mm-hmm. here's where the weaknesses are, and then you could write policy based upon, you know, those weaknesses and corrections to them, etc. It seems to me that if you had more of a structured approach, and we're using a respected third party, like the, those two companies that do that sort of thing, that you you would a be better, much better off in terms of your maintaining those incredible margins that you guys have over PNC business, but also that your likelihood of of success would be improved too. Completely agree. I mean, going back, looking back at the insurance, cyber insurance industry prior to 2020, to put it in perspective, it's almost like underwriting a property policy, offering property insurance, but not asking what type of structure you have, or is it located in an area that's prone to hurricanes? Or yeah. It's, I mean, that that's like the equivalent of yeah. what was being done because it's, it, you have to be looking at what type of resiliency does an organization have? Do they, are they, are they training their employees regularly on phishing? Are they providing data backup and recovery, disaster recovery on an annualized basis? At least, you know, do they have the proper security protocols in place? Do they have a firewall? Do they have a cadence for updating uh, security vulnerabilities and patches or, or a, a different cadence for critical vulnerabilities? Uh, a lot of that was just swept under the rug. And you're right, with the rise of InsurTax, you know, and, and broker, you know, as one of those, we have and we're seeing more partnerships with reputable, very reputable cybersecurity firms that that are able to do active monitoring, that are able to take a look at you know, the perimeter that are able to offer a variety of training and development services to, to make the organization more secure, to give them more resources on the front end so that the policy just doesn't become important when a claim occurs. Because what, what happens is most people purchase insurance, it's an afterthought. You throw the policy on the shelf and dust collects, you know, dust collects on it. You, you only need it when something bad happens. But what we're seeing in, in cyber insurance and what we've been focused on is having that policy work for you, having a number of services that are being provided upfront that are actually useful and bene- you know will benefit that are beneficial to the organization. So it's it's almost like looking at cyber insurance as an investment in the organization, an investment in improving their security, and that's particularly critical for that small and mid-sized business space where they don't have all of the relationships, they don't have necessarily the budget, they don't have all of the resources. To be able to, you know, invest in porn to the company from a cybersecurity or a regulatory standpoint. So the cyber insurance companies and insurtechs, they've begun now for the last couple of years to focus more on that because if the business can be more resilient, it will be a better risk for the insurance carrier. Everybody wins in that scenario. So that that's what we've seen quite a bit of. You know, it's been an, a rise in the offering of resources, the rise in offering, you know, services to make an organization more secure. And and I think that's very important. Yeah, sure. No, you're right. And uh, that's a great point. We can leave this at, I think, today. And 
you know, I'd love to pick this up again, uh, maybe midway through the first quarter, just to kind of see what by that time, what the continued fallout from SBF and and F, F, FTX have been. And we talk about that some more. Uh, I'm sure that they'll I just, you know, if we're not careful, the government will be running all of this for us. And that's not a good outcome. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> from my humble point of view. So I agree. So thank you, David. It was a real pleasure. And uh, thanks for taking the time to, to visit with us today. David Derigiotis, there you go, is the Chief Insurance Officer once again for Unbroker. I hope that our audience enjoyed this half hour. There was a lot to talk about here and there's a lot going on in the space and it's going to get uh, more interesting as time goes on. So We'll talk again in a few months, David. And so thank you to our audience as well for taking the time out of your day to join us. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again. <laughs>